Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. In this episode I'm talking to Bee Setham about her literary novel Berlin. Bee was born in France and spent her early years in the Parisian suburbs before moving to the USA to study philosophy. Upon graduating she relocated to Berlin which inspired her debut novel. In this episode we discuss why she thinks her protagonist Daphne is a realistic narrator rather than an unreliable one, building tension and mystery retrospectively and getting through the pain of a first draft. But first, here's B with an excerpt from Berlin. Chapter 1. A Fresh Start I arrived in Berlin at the beginning of February before the shame and guilt brewing somewhere low in my stomach turned symptomatic. These feelings were disproportionate to the events that had engendered them. The unreciprocated drunken confession to a man I had pined after for a year. An argument with a flatmate about a neglected kitten. An unexplained resignation followed by a refusal to even read my boss's hurt emails. Nothing that will loom large in the retrospective of my life. Nothing I'll remember much longer. Just the kind of routine negligence and behaviour that slowly taints everything. I was ruining my life a little every day. And although I see now that these things were redeemable, I've always found starting on a clean page more inviting than amending an imperfect first attempt. I moved from London without telling anyone that I was leaving, without saying goodbye to the people I knew there. Berlin's an easy place to start anew, as everyone seems to have just arrived. People even dress as if they are perched on the sill of a long journey with belt bags and bandanas and tin bottles clipped to rucksacks with complex infrastructures. When I first arrived, I found the city shockingly dirty. Not in a picturesque, old-fashioned way. Don't think of mud or pastoral dung, the kind of organic crud that calls for a thorough, satisfying scrub-down with a hard bar of soap after a long, sheet-reddening day. I mean depressing, modern trash the caution to the paradox of too little and too much. Ugly corners of yoghurt pots and immortal plastic bags, trainers and soaked old spongy mattresses covered in glittering bottle shards. Hi B, welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Berlin. Hi Claire, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on. It's really grateful for the invitation. 
So could, could you start by telling us what Berlin's about? Yes. Um, so Berlin is the story of a young woman called Daphne who moves to Berlin looking for a fresh start, um, eager to leave all her problems behind and lead the exciting Berlin life. She expects to have a great time, learn German, meet men and have, you know, a typical kind of 20s um, experience. Um, but that is not what happens Uh one evening, something very mysterious happens to Daphne. And then a short while later, something really terrifying happens to her. And what she had hoped would be a story of a joyfully mis chapter, a joyful chapter of misspent youth becomes a um, fight for survival. So I would describe Berlin as a form of psychological thriller, but also a coming of age story. I think it's, it's kind of between those two genres. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's a kind of, slow creeping paranoia for Daphne isn't it so I was Absolutely. wondering whether you could tell us where the idea for the novel began really um so I think the idea came um from some of my own experiences uh living in Berlin I found but I moved to Berlin uh in my early 20s after I graduated from university and I found it a really fascinating city um because it's a city around which there's a lot of hype um it's sort of a mythic city a lot of people are moving there with very particular idea of the kind of experience they'd like to get out of it and I found the city so much more complex uh and you know bigger than any of the cliches and stereotypes I'd heard before um and it kind of was it was a real challenge to be there and um it's an incredibly atmospheric city with so much history and it's an incredible combination of light. So, you know, there's a big party scene. It's a very, very accepting and diverse city. You can really like dress what you want, be who you want. Um, you know, any kind of expression is accepted and like lovingly encouraged. On the other hand, there's also like a dark side to that city um, because <laughs> self-expression can also resemble self-destruction, I found, um, especially in Berlin. And obviously there's the heavy city of that's a heavy history of the divided city, um, the East-West divide, you know, divide um, and also um, the Second World War. Um, and so it's a very interesting city full of contradictions and that being there inspired the mood of the novel with its kind of combination of humour and dark paranoia. Mm. Yeah, I think you're, the fact that you've lived in Berlin comes across quite clearly in the novel. I mean, it, it, you, you really transport the reader there. And I, I don't feel like it's a a novel way you can tell the writer hasn't ever been there. I mean, that it lives and breathes Berlin. I mean, the title kind of gives it away. Um, yeah. So how did you, I'm guessing from that, that you start you started this novel as more of like a a vibe than, than a necessarily mm. a story. So how did that go from kind of having this sense of place? And did you have a sense of Daphne when you started writing or did she just kind of come from you wanting to write about Berlin? Um, I think that um, I think that there was a, I, I did I had so I had a real sense of like the vibe of Berlin and I had a sense of the character of Daphne and trying to put Daphne in Berlin was like what created a kind of interesting tension and challenge because effectively Daphne is so self-centered um, and absorbed by her own problems that the, that Berlin is really in the background in a certain sense. Um, 
And so there was this fun tension of trying to really create her interior world vividly, but also create the world of Berlin vividly. Um, I didn't want it to be like, oh, well, this could have happened in any city. Mm. I wanted it to feel quite particular to that place. But that was hard because like, Daphne is very, it's a very solipsistic story of someone kind of stuck in their head. And so how can you both account for that and make the city concretely real? Um, that was quite hard, but that was what was fun about writing to um I definitely it was like a, a you know it was a story that started with character and vibe and um I was able I'd say like from the beginning to create a sense of like creeping foreshadowing but the funny thing was is that I didn't really have a story so there was a whole lot of foreshadowing about but I didn't know what didn't about know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was like oh you know oh foreshadowing or like oh you know a creeping suspicion something uncanny is happening and I didn't know what the uncanny thing was for a really <laughs> long time so I felt I don't know I felt a little bit at the beginning like you know those true crime series on TV or in podcasts that create suspense around absolutely nothing, you know, like they have to do that to keep you listening or to yeah. keep you watching. And they like create the most stupid cliffhangers. A lot of my early writing was like that, where like the cliffhanger <laughs> would be like, and I went into the supermarket and then, you know, cliffhanger. Then it was like, and I bought some milk. Like I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, I could create the suspense, but I couldn't uh, attach it to anything worthy of that level of atmosphere. So that was definitely a challenge at the beginning. So did that worry you when you were writing? Did you kind of panic because you didn't know what the end result would be or what the threat was going to be? Or was that something you were just happy to kind of work towards with and know that you would get there eventually? Yeah. I mean, I think at the beginning, you know, I wasn't, when I embarked, when I started writing Berlin, I was not embarking on a project. I was not, I first thought it would be a short story um, that I was doing, as a kind of experiment for myself, I hadn't really written fiction. I hadn't written before very much. Like I'd done academic writing during my degree, but I hadn't written anything creatively for a really long time since I was a child. And so I didn't sort of launch upon it like I'm going to write a novel. This mm. is going to be the project. I, I just wrote short passages um, and try to create a world but I mean interesting I was very detached from the end result which I guess was quite a good thing and that wasn't you know because I sort of exercised control over my psychology or anything it was just purely because I didn't know what to hope for um, you know I was just writing sending what I was writing to like my friends and my mom you know it, but I didn't you know and I was I was just doing it for the sake of it I didn't mm. have any ambition so I was so that made it quite it was quite relaxing actually. Like I didn't have this sense of, oh, I need this, you know, um, because there were zero stakes in it for me. Um, so that was my, my first writing experience was very low pressure for that reason, I think. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, I think for some writers, they set out and think, like you say, I'm gonna, this is gonna be a novel, I'm gonna write this novel and then I'm gonna submit it to agents. But probably yeah. there's more pleasure in just writing for fun and for the sake of it. And like you say, just sending it to your mum. And, and that feels like, <laughs> It's like you say, low stakes, but then at least that way you're having fun finding out the answers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think that, I think that's the, the sad thing about that is that I'm not sure, the sad and happy thing about having got, you know, published the book is I'm not sure I'll get to write in that kind of innocent way that I did before. Because now when I'm writing, well, I'm like, okay, well, 
is this good? You know, I'm asking yeah. that and with with the ambition someone will read it one day. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could I could get rid of that feeling eventually. <laughs> but right now that's what it feels like. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Daphne because she has a really interesting point of view. The story's from her perspective, but um she has a really interesting way of kind of almost chatting with the reader and but talking very candidly to them and saying, um, you know, oh, I lied about that mm-hmm. thing. And um, what was it that made you decide to kind of narrate the story in that way? Or did it, did her voice just kind of come to you fully formed? Um, I mean, her voice came to me quite naturally, but then I've kind of retrospectively given a good reason for why. <laughs> it was it was based on instinct, but, you know, I've tried to, I've come up with a good reason why I did it like that. I suppose that I really... I wanted Daphne, I mean, I really wanted her to feel vivid and like, you know, like a friend um, who is very honest um, about the, about her flaws and about the extent to which she is able to understand her flaws. So, you know, most narrators, they just give you a kind of direct access to the interior process and to what's happening in their story, you know, so they'll tell you about other characters and if they're a reliable narrator, you'll just take whatever they say at face value. And that's the whole point. There's no sense of oh, well, what it, what's being concealed or revealed for me. But for me, I mean, the interesting thing about Daphne is she, like a real person, is making you know, okay, well, I'm a little bit, but you know, clearly she's a bit biased. Um, and clearly she's struggling to always be honest. Um, and so that really was the idea. I wanted her to feel real. And to me, I love... Uh, I mean, I love reading and I love um, narrators and most narrators are reliable, but they, that doesn't always feel to me very realistic because most, mostly when you have, when you meet a person, for example, you don't have full access to everything in them and they won't tell you everything about themselves. Mm. You have to earn their confidence. And I wanted to create that experience with Daphne and the reader. So was that fun to make her this unreliable narrator? Because what I liked as well that you gave kind of, little footnotes sometimes where sometimes it was about language and German things that you wanted to explain but sometimes it was simply just Daphne saying well that never happened so what was that kind of a fun thing to to do to make her this because I think even I mean I won't give anything away but even as we move towards the end the reader Mm. does question how much of what Daphne's told us did happen yeah yeah that's really interesting. I mean, I think what I wanted to do structurally without, um, you know, without any spoilers was I wanted at the begin, like I think the beginning of the novel, Daphne lies much more to the reader. Mm. And then slowly she becomes more and more honest with the reader and less and less honest with secondary characters. So like we are towards the end of the novel, we're quite privy to what's true or not and to Daphne's lives. The people around her, however are being lied to and so like I want the tension in the novel I think comes from the fact that we are actually initiated into the truth and we can see that she's lying to people around her and we're worried about what's going to happen and Mm. so we're kind of forced into this unpleasant position of of her life like we share her lives with her like we're unwilling confidants of her um I mean it was yeah and it was really fun doing that but actually but it's funny because people do call her an unreliable narrator. But I actually think that like most unreliable narrators, I think they should be called realistic narrators. Mm. Um, because I think they resemble what people are like in real life more. So for example, you know, I might 
let's say I might have an argument with a friend and let's say I'll call another friend about it. I'll call my mum up and I'll tell her about the argument with a friend. I might aim to recount what happened in a totally honest manner, but I'm, I also want my mum to empathize with me and to comfort me. So yeah. I'm going to tell it in a certain way. And that's just how people are, um, mm. you know, and when we're looking at our own flaws, like, you know, we might be very self-critical, but we also have to shield ourselves, you know, for example, from the hurt we've done to others, right? Like very few people in this world walk around every day thinking that they're evil. They might have like self-esteem issues, but they don't <laughs> think I'm a bad person, you know, mm. at core, I'm a terrible person. It's rare that people feel that. And that's very distinguished from like poor self-esteem. A lot of people have that, mm. but I would say, you know, that impulse to tell a story, you know, to your mom or your friend or whatever in a way that makes you look good is like completely universal. Mm. Um, and I mean, unless there are some people who have an amazing capacity for total honesty and self-insight, which I lack. And so I didn't, you know, I exaggerate that tendency in Daphne, um, but I do, but I think it's, I think it's quite realistic rather than unreliable. Mm. And and she does lie sometimes, but I also think people lie sometimes. Um, you know, it's like when someone asks you, you know, if you can go, if they invite you to something and you really don't want to go and you don't want to hurt their feelings, I'm not often going to say, I actually will really not enjoy that. So I'm not going to come. I'll come up with an excuse. Right. Mm. And we all do it. And we don't yeah. call it lying because lying is like so morally condemned in our society. But I think it's really common. And we lie to ourselves as well. Like, you know, not, you know, just I, I, I think, you know, we're living we live in a world where it's like quite hard to be moral and good all the time. And um, like a lot of kind of evil or immoral things that we do are quite banal like you know how we shop and how that the results that has on the environment and you know inequality and stuff like that and we're not constantly living in that knowledge all the time we we have to deliberately forget about it and so I think all these tendencies Daphne has of self-delusion and you know uh portraying herself as better than she is is very it's very common. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, that, that's a very long-winded way of answering. Um, but I don't think she's very, I think she's realistic. I don't think she's unreliable. Mm. Yeah. I want to touch a bit more about Berlin because I don't know where, were you writing any of this when you were there? Was it something you did when you were away from the city? How did you kind of, cause I guess even if you know a place very well, you're still mm. having to immerse yourself in it to, to write it well. Mm. Yeah, I um I had to I was there when I was writing it. Um and I had to go back when I was editing it. I mean I didn't have to, I really wanted to. I, mm. I love that city, but um I think that it really has to I'm quite obsessed with things being accurate and um, you know, giving a real sense of being there materially. And I, you know, because people Berlin is such like an idea, you know, I could say Berlin to someone and they could associate so many things with it. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to fall into the crutch of like stereotype, which is so hard not to do. And so I really wanted to be there and to be like, well, what's it actually like? What are people like? What does it smell like? You know, all those kinds yeah. of things. So that was, but that was such a pleasure because it allowed me to be in a place like much more than I usually would be, I think. Mm. I think it's it was interesting as a setting because I haven't read many novels that are set in Berlin and I really feel like 
even though I've never been, I have a better sense of the place having read this novel. And even though like the tiny little details that I feel like unless you've lived there, you wouldn't know. And I think that really comes across really well. Yeah. You have a wonderful way of describing characters. And when the bits I loved the best in this novel was where Daphne would meet someone or she'd describe someone that she knows and she'd give us a little anecdote about their life or she'd give them give us a little very precise description of how they look so how much of that is in your first draft is it something that you kind of come up with easily these little observations or is it something you have to go back when you're editing Mm -hmm. and kind of fill it in later what what is your process for that um I think it's kind of a mixture actually I think some descriptions come really easily and then others you go back and you realize like I mean, it's really hard. It's, it's interesting. It takes real concentration to think about how what what you write describes somehow, and to really think, okay, well, what? It's a really odd thing to say, but what does a face really look like? Mm-hmm. Like, how can we try? I mean, I struggle with this all the time now. Or you know, even something like really simple. It's like what you know, the color of someone's hair. What color is it really? What the expression on their face? Either we can just kind of fall into the like easy shorthand of using very familiar language Mm. that we all think about but you know very often when you read descriptions that you've read a million times before you don't your brain like doesn't go to the effort of visualizing it that's what's so fun about poetry is that in poetry it makes you pause and like really imagine what it looks like or what it sounds like or something like that and so you know some descriptions came to me really easily and then others I really had to work very hard on to say okay but what does that actually look like really um beyond just like thinking about how it's been described before um and that's really fun like that's one of my favorite parts of writing but I don't always do it very well but um I like doing that I like kind of really thinking about uh you know small details because that that's totally what makes a book real to us isn't it it's really it's like having an idea of how that character smells or how they smile or what their laugh sounds like I love all that stuff when I read it's what I enjoy the most so I wanted to yeah. kind of try and produce I'm, that I'm totally the same and I think that's why that's what really stood out to me as something I enjoyed so much in your writing and I think it shows that you enjoy it as well because you do it yeah. so well and I think like you say your brain almost it's like dialogue tags right if you're if you're writing said 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 which obviously you usually are supposed to do your brain kind of ignores them and just reads the dialogue but like you said, if you're describing a character and you just say they are tall or they're blonde, that your brain almost just glosses over that. But when you've described, yeah. I can't think of an example now from your novel, but when when you've described something so specific about their appearance or something they did in the past or their boyfriend or, or whatever, it's mm-hmm. your brain has to conjure an image then. And then the characters are much more likely to resonate with you, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's what I love, you know, like for like Donatart is just mm. so good at doing that. Like Donatart describes, you know, this someone doing a one-armed shrug. And I mean, that sounds like nothing, but she does it maybe a few times. That's in the secret history. Or she describes the kind of like laughter of the character Boris and the goldfinch. And you always remember it. It makes It's what makes people real. So I think people are like really scared of overwriting because it's really fashionable to like write like, you know, Hemingway style like oh just you know slashing all adjectives and just getting straight to the point and I just think that like that that's a shame (laughs) like it's it's a shame to write like that Mm. yeah 
there's one thing you've done in the novel which I think really encapsulates how well you are of observations and it's when Daphne is doing online dating and she describes like all these different types of guys and like you know there's the guy that um it's like the really macho guy and then you've got the guy that's like the social justice warrior and I thought that was brilliantly done as well I love that section that was so fun to write that was like the funnest that was the funnest thing to write Mm. because and it got off a lot of like my vindictive energy which was a bit you know like that was (laughs) that was like revenge against the dating apps um uh, (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I think um that was really really fun also because there's that saying of, you know, that like um, men really hate it when women laugh at them. Um, and I think it is quite like healthy in general. I mean, this is meant to me, for me, like Berlin's quite like a feminist type novel. Um, and I think that, you know, and it's a novel where there is like a lot of pain around issues relating to like embodiment and the patriarchy and, you know, what it means to be a decorous female um, and um, the pain of conformity and nonconformity, all those things. And I wanted to balance that with some kind of str- a feeling of strength from Daphne. And that com- that's her humor because she mm. laughs at the men who she so like craves to impress and she craves their approval, but she's very self-aware. So she also laughs at them and at herself. I think the thing that like kept it from being cruel was the fact that Daphne Daphne's more critical of herself than anyone else, even when she's being horrible about the men, which meant mm. that it was kind of, I, don't, I think people, you know, a lot of my male friends who are on dating apps read it and weren't, you know, devastated by it or anything like that. They found <laughs> it funny as well. So so I wanted to ask you possibly maybe a bit of a technical question, really, because your novel, and you've described it as well as a, as a thriller, but I feel it has a quieter edge to it. Mm. And you've said a more introspective, um, feel to it than a kind of typical psychological thriller so and maybe you answered this earlier in the sense that you the story came later but how did you go about structuring and, and plotting a, a kind of quieter thriller was it something you did almost in reverse and you had to put things in afterwards how did you go about building the story um, I mean I had to put things I had to put many things in afterwards um, because I mean you know for example the ending of the novel that really came together with like the ideas and support of my editor. I think I, it wouldn't have nearly been, and I wouldn't have nearly been as proud of the novel as I am if it hadn't been for her ideas and all the creative input she gave me. So, mm-hmm. I mean, from that point of view, just a lot of the stuff in Berlin, you know, not all of it belongs to me creatively, actually. I would say a lot of it belongs to my editor. A lot of it belongs to my mum who read, <laughs> read it and gave me feedback. Um, I think it is a bit more of a quiet, thriller because it's kind of it's like not you know sounds really pretentious but like the issues are more existential than material for Daphne and so that's what makes it more of a core I mean there's the thrillery atmosphere but basically you know it's like it's a story the the stakes the story of self-discovery in a way um although there are some you know more serious material things that happen and so I think one of the important aspects of that plot was making Daphne a character who was materially very unchallenged. So, I mean, Daphne's a really privileged person. She doesn't like, she doesn't have to work um, and she can afford to pay her rent and afford to feed herself. And in a certain sense that like removes all necessity from her life. And that made it easier to focus on the more 
sort of existential components of like what was happening with her. Because I think Berlin would have been a very different novel, for example, if Daphne was really struggling to find employment or, mm. you know, to like secure like government support or anything like if that had been her struggle, you know, the sort of bureaucratic um, nightmare of those kinds of situations, I think it would have been, so, it would have been a very different story. Mm. Maybe like a, a good story, but that wasn't what I wanted my focus to be. And in a certain sense, that was like, that was a, you know, a bit of a gamble because I did, people find it really hard to take Daphne's issues seriously because they're not material problems and she's so privileged, which is, you know, actually that, that's, that, that is valid. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a struggle with herself really more than anything, isn't it? And exactly. There are external things happening, but the more you read the book, you, you realise that a lot of the things are coming from within Daphne. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that she... She's very, I mean, I think one of the things that she really longs for, and I think a lot of people long for, is, is the feeling of like being the hero or heroine of their own story. Um, and Daphne is like the anti-heroine of her own story because she's very powerful, but it's a destructive power. So she's very self-destructive. And that is what causes the plot to move. It's not very much, you know, it's not anything external. Mm. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I want to touch a little bit on your kind of general writing routine, really, because um, I heard another interview with you where you said you much preferred kind of working on 
writing you've already written and editing which I totally relate to because I I much prefer having written than actually writing to be honest Um, and I I wondered how um, how you feel about that and also kind of how do you break through that uh, the kind of the ugliness of the first draft and that horrible blank page oh yeah it's so hard isn't it I mean I think (laughs) I, I play very aggressive psychological games with myself um, I mean, I can, and I think I know where I learned this from. So, so when I was younger, I mean, until actually relatively recently, I was terrified of taking the plane. I have really bad fear of flying, you know, to the point that if I saw a plane in the sky, I was scared. Um, and my brother, you know, quite rather brutally said to me, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. Like you're not going to be in a plane crash. You're like, you're not so it's very it happens to very few people and you're not that important that it's going to happen <laughs> to you which sounds horrible but it was very helpful for me mm-hmm. to sort of think my just sort of you know think don't make it about you so much and that's kind of the approach that I take to the first draft where I'm like you know who do you think you are that it should be good <laughs> like so I kind of it's an odd thing because it sounds very negative but it's a way of kind of putting myself in perspective mm-hmm. and saying you know, you're not Sylvia Plath. You're not like an app, you know, not, you're not a genius. Mm. So, you know, and, um, you know, even Sylvia Plath had to work hard. So why should it be good from the beginning? You know, yeah. even Sylvia Plath had rejections. Like she submitted loads, you know, to loads of journals and, and newspapers that rejected her work. And so when you know that, that modest, that kind of helps me feel the sort of, modest lack of expectation around the first draft Mm -hmm. and then I have to totally reverse that when I go into the second draft where I'm like this has to be really good (laughs) you know but 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 by then I have the material so I can be harder on myself yeah yeah I feel I really need to channel that but I think my (laughs) I know that and yet I'm still writing and thinking (laughs) this should be good like yeah I can it's in there somewhere like Mm. how do I get it out and I think yeah I think we could all do with that advice of just thinking well of course it's going to be rubbish first draft because we're not perfect people but it's easier said than done right so yeah 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 yeah. it's very hard to figure out around all this stuff like where kind of a lack of self-confidence and a weird narcissistic perfectionism comes from (laughs) like this assumption that it should be perfect also comes from a lack of self-confidence it's very Mm -hmm. straight but also behind that is a kind of you know in my case a kind of like arrogance where I'm like well, anything I write has to be really good. It's like, where it's all confusing. So <laughs> I think that like, we need kind of self-respect and also um, to take perspective and to be like, okay, you know, this is, this is the first draft, you know, that's what it's, it's called that for a reason. Mm. And I know you said that you hadn't started out with the intention to write a novel when you, you weren't someone that had always written. So how did you go from kind of writing this piece fun and maybe a short story, and then thinking, okay, it is a novel, what am I going to do with it? How did you go from kind of, how did you see that potential in it to go further then? Um, I think, so my mum saw the potential in it, and my mum is like very supportive, but she wouldn't expose me if, she, if it wasn't, I mean, I, tr- you know, my mom reads a lot and I've got my love of re- re- reading from her. And I knew that like, she's, she, she's quite critical while being supportive. So if she didn't think it was good, she wouldn't encourage me to keep, mm-hmm. to, to, to send it out. Like she wouldn't want to expose me to any disappointment, but I think she thought it was good. Not that, you know, my mom's an expert or anything like that, but her confidence in me gave me self-confidence. And then I also thought like, there's literally nothing 
there's nothing to lose by sending it out to agents. Mm -hmm. I have like, you know, I've been, the main thing I've done in my life is like academic stuff. And so, you know, I was, I've been rejected. I was rejected from graduate school twice. Like my character, Daphne, like I have applied to so many things and been rejected. And all you do is when you get rejection, you just delete it from your inbox. You purge it as if it was never there and you move on. Like you don't even need to tell anyone. So there's nothing lost in sending out applications to agents. And that's what I did. And I like, I, I just, I, I was totally indiscriminate. I just sent out dozens and dozens and I did not tailor it to people's interests, which is a bit horrible. But, you know, like people spend, I know people who, you know, spend like days perfecting a letter to a particular editor and then they might get like an automatic reply from that editor saying, I'm not accepting anything for the next six months. So, mm. sorry, for agents, I mean, you know, and so you can't like be that careful. You have to, yeah, I mean, that was my belief. I was like, just get it out there as much as I can. Yeah, so tell us then how you got your agent and how that led to your book deal. Um, I sent it out. So I sent it out to, I, I don't really remember the timeline and I don't remember how many agents I sent it to because, because as I said, when I got rejections, I deleted the rejection, you know, because I was like, I don't want to keep seeing this in my inbox. But I think I sent it to about 40, maybe, perhaps maybe more, maybe 50. I can't remember now. Um, and then I got two acceptances in one week um and that was amazing I mean and that was about six months after I'd finished it or something like that um and then and then I worked on it with my agent and then we sent it out again and then it again I think my agent sent my yeah my agent sent it to about 20 people and I got one acceptance so that's like one out of 40 times one out of 20 so that's one out of 80 or something like that so one out of 80 was like what I you know that was the the, that's how many I don't know what exactly the stats reveal about that but it was just it was it was very high volume of um applications to a very low you know bad ratio Mm. of acceptances isn't it and I think that's the thing with publishing we only like learn about the outliers so the the people that get the seven-way auctions or the you know they've submitted to 250 agents and then they finally get an acceptance and I think yeah for most people it's somewhere in between yes yes absolutely I think it is yeah that's that's the thing I mean I think the the thing that helped me slightly throughout this process is that I didn't have social media until I published the book so it's only now that I've had social media and I'm part of, you know, this writing community, including, you know, the group that you host on Thursdays, you know. Um, and it's only now that I've realized that I've kind of seen the process for people and how difficult it is. And I think it was, although I think social media is great and, it, you know, it can be a source of mutual support for people. I didn't compare myself to anyone because I didn't, I wasn't following anyone else's journey and I think that was really positive yeah. um I, I mean I, I was get, yeah get bogged down in it and I think that can be difficult because um that you only you only hear well you usually only hear the amazing you know they've got a tv deal a book deal and yeah you know all yeah. this and and I think it is hard when you're seeing that and maybe you're in the early stages or you've just had 10 rejections from agents it, that can be hard and I can I mean it's it's a great environment for community but I can also see it can be quite detrimental if you're 
not feeling great about yourself on a particular day as well. Hundred percent. I mean, it seems to me that social media is like, well, like I'll say Twitter specifically is a combination of like extremely negative and extremely positive, and there's just nothing in between there, you know. And it's a bit of an odd place. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and I, you know, it can be really supportive, and it's been amazing to connect with people because I've not, you know, I don't have a community of writers like. I've yeah I, I don't have I don't have any I only have you know one or two friends who write so meeting mm. people through that's been amazing but I think it can also I think people should really know when to come off it and yeah. to be very protective of themselves much more protective of themselves than people tend to be mm. so speaking of kind of support and um community I noticed in your acknowledgments that one of the people you thanked was Ali Smith and yeah. you said that she gave writers feedback um when you were at Newham College so can you yeah. remember what her kind of encouragement was that that yeah. yeah, it was amazing. So just, you know, to give context to how that happened, it was during, I did a master's degree at Newnham College and um, during, when there was, uh, during COVID, so when the first COVID lockdown happened, you know, so everyone had to like move home and everything and everyone, I mean, it was very upsetting for lots of people, especially because people were in the middle of like their final dissertations and mm. stuff, you know, and, and I think people got like one week's extension thing you know like it was really I mean it was a really hard time and during that time Ali Smith reached out to Newnham College which was her college when she was at Cambridge and said you know if there are any aspiring writers who want some encouragement you know I'd love to like offer some of my time up which I think is just such a generous thing for her to have done yeah and I just wrote and I, I, I that was about a year after I'd written Berlin and I wrote and I just sent her what I had and what was so encouraging I mean what was so encouraging was her just being in contact with someone like that who I so admire and her generosity in reading, you know, people's work, you know, because I don't know how many people sent her their work, but it would have taken up a lot of her time. And I'm sure she's very over solicited. And I think the most encouraging thing she said about Berlin specifically was that she found it funny, which I was like, you know, that was an amazing compliment for me because I admire her so much. So it was really nice. Yeah, I mean, it was such a generous thing for her to do. Um, and I really like, I just think, you know, people who get to that sort of position of, you know, influence and success and who are still so generous, it's really great. Because not all writers are like that. Some people are like really competitive <laughs> with, you know, and they just they like they want to hog their minute on stage mm. and they're not going to give anyone a leg up. And it's like, she's the opposite of that. So that was great. Yeah, that's great. So finally, can you tell us anything about what you're working on next? Yeah, I can. I am working on it. I was working on it this morning. Um, it is uh, going to be set in Cambridge um, because I always set things in places that I've lived and I just moved. I was I just did my master's at Cambridge and I've just, well, now I'm living in London. But um, so it's going to be set in Cambridge and um my narrator is a woman and um it's a kind of morality story so it's about um someone trying to understand why they've acted in the way they have and whether or not that makes them a good or a bad person um but I really want to play with like I mean I want to play with morality in the story and my aim is to get the reader to empathize with something quite terrible that somebody does and to feel like they might have done the same thing in the same situation um 
and so yeah that's what I'm working with that's what I'm working on at the moment well that sounds great I love the idea of playing with kind of the reader's idea of morality as well that sounds really cool Bees, yeah. thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you so much for having me it's such a privilege to be asked and I loved chatting with you that was B Seton talking about her literary novel Berlin which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the confessions of a debut novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.